The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I'm so thankful to commence Christmas with the Gospel of John. I think they go together so well. John's Gospel, it's excellently written and has a very clear, God-breathed author. He explains exactly why he's written it. I think it's on the screen for you, John 20, verse 31. Near the end of the book, he tells you precisely why he's written this book. Verse 30, which you don't have, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but not what you do have in front of you. But these are written so that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want you to notice he's telling you exactly why this is written. It's written so that we would respond by believing. But notice that believing is written two different ways. First is that you may believe, that you may make a decisive commitment to bring all of yourself to all that is found in Jesus Christ. But the second way the word believe is used is believing, that by continuing to believe, you may come to him daily, regularly, consistently. It would be a daily choice to come to Christ. Life then is something that is an eternal possession. The moment you have it, think of John 3. God so loved the world, sent his only son, whoever believes in him would have, possess eternal life. But life also in Jesus is a daily sustaining reality. Which is why also in the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life, but then he'll add, whoever feeds on me. So this is a decisive commitment to believe, but it's also a daily choice to come and trust. It's a once-for-all possession to have eternal life, but it's also a recurring need to come to Christ for sustaining life. And I share this with you up front because as we look again at the Gospel of John, maybe you've read it 20, 30 times in your life, but we still need to come to Christ for life. Or perhaps the Gospel of John is fairly new to you, and you're here this morning because it's Christmas season. Wonderful. This is written so that you would believe, so that you would come to Christ and have life in his name. Now, the whole book is called a gospel because it's the good news about the person that is written on. Who is this person that you can have life in him? Who is this person that you can return to him and come to him moment by moment for the sustaining life you need? And that's why we look at today's sermon, the word. And if you're not in John chapter one yet, if you'll take a pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 1053, We're going to look through John chapter 1 this morning, and we'll begin in what's called the prologue, and the prologue is verses 1 through 18. Verses 1 through 3, which is what we'll focus on first, have enough in it that we could spend the whole year on verses 1, 2, and 3, maybe eternity even. And there's so much to marvel on. But John 1, 1 through 18 is called the prologue because a prologue is an introductory preface to a literary work. It's like the table of contents, if you will. It's just that it's the best table of contents ever written. And so in it, we're going to go slow enough to see all that it says, but we're going to try to go fast enough that we follow John's intended pace. 
Because if we go too slow, we'll start drawing stuff from later in the book. We need to get there on our own pace. But today, I think, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 1 through 13 of this table of contents, John 1, 1 through 13. Let's notice a few things about just the first few verses, and look, if you would, at John 1, verse 1, the first three words, in the beginning. Perhaps those words look familiar to you. I know all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it's wonderful, all of it's joyous, but because God did not flatten the human authors, the authors do write somewhat differently. And that's, I think, the reason why many of us gravitate towards certain biblical authors We just like the way they think and the way they communicate. I like John. Of course, I love Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I prefer the way that John does it. So Matthew is really interesting. He starts with a genealogy. He he wants you to know the historical background to lead you to the birth of Jesus Christ. Mark starts right away with this is the gospel of Jesus. Then he goes right to John the Baptist by the second and third verse. Luke begins by telling you all the research he did, all the careful eyewitness accounts, and then he does eyewitness accounts. This is what Zachariah saw. This is what Elizabeth saw. This is what Mary saw. They all do the birth narrative. John does none of that. No birth narrative, no angels, no shepherds. Why? Because John zooms all the way out. And he begins, in the beginning. Where are those three words from? Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John comes and says, hey, but there was more to it than that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. John's letting us know, yes, Genesis records the beginning of human existence, but there's this person, this Word, and He preceded that beginning. And in fact, that beginning came into existence through him. None of that beginning would exist apart from him. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said, this book is written so that you would believe and so that you would continue to trust. Don't we already see good reason to trust this person? He has always existed. Everything that is made is made through him. What could I not bring to him? What disappointment could I not trust him with? What discouragement could I not leave to him? What doubt could I not be open with him about? He is the word, the eternal being, the agent of creation. Now, the second thing I want you to notice, I first wanted you to notice the in the beginning part, the Genesis echo, but now I want you to notice that the word is God, and yet the word is distinct from God. Look at the end of verse one. The word was with God, so he's distinct from God, and yet the word was God. Now, these details are very precise. They're sharper than a razor's edge. Where I grew up in Michigan, there was a Burger King not that far from where I grew up, and on the marquee sign out front, it said, now hiring closers. And someone in the neighborhood kept stealing the C, which changes the meaning. (laughs) There were losers applying left and right. It's very hard to bring your resume to a place that says, now hiring losers, right? See, sometimes one letter can make all the difference. Notice the text does not say the word was a God. The text says the word was God. 
It's even more marvelous that it's not the word was the God, because that would mean that he's indistinguishable, that God is only one. No, the word was God. The word has all of the eternal qualities that make God God, and yet is distinct among the Godhead. Three persons, co-eternal, co-existent in excellence and glory. This is, of course, the very beginning of John's gospel, so we'll have more chapters to unpack what Christians for thousands of years have called the Trinity, but we at least have a hint of it here, that God exists in multiple persons, co-eternal in their glory and co-existent in their essence. Again, friend, I want to remind you the word was written so that you would believe if this person is God, what could you not trust him with? God who's always been, God who's made everything, God who is God and yet with God. Well, this leads to a fair question. What then is the word or who is the word? John's using this word, word, who or what is that thing? And let me just say, and I say this for your benefit, as a pastor, I have to do a lot of wide reading that, that I, I read for your joy to protect you from some of the worst resources <laughs> out there. And this is where a lot of bad resources pop in. And I'm just going to simply explain why you can quickly dismiss those. Have you ever been talking to someone else and while you're talking to them, you can see their eyes kind of glaze over and you can tell they're no longer listening to you. And then as you continue, they respond and what they say is so off topic. You say, I don't think you were listening to me. My wife is nodding in the front pew right now. I've done this to her. I've done this to her. I'm guilty of this. What bad scholars do with John 1 is literally that simple. This is the part where they lean in and say, oh, the word, let me tell you what the word is, instead of just listening to John explain what the word is. Here are some common ones. Sometimes this is where people lean in and they say, oh, oh, oh the word is from the Greek word logos, and we all know that John is probably drawing subtly on Greek philosophy. Maybe Stoicism or Philo or Plato. And I'm like, no, he's writing in Greek. What, what other meaning could there... That's the language he's using. Why try to interrupt him and have some secret meaning? Or this is where Jewish rabbis have leaned in and say, oh, let's interrupt John at this point. John must be talking about wisdom as in the Talmud and the rabbinical traditions. Of course, again, there's no reason to interrupt John. Just let him keep talking. Or people will lean in and they'll say, oh, the word logos, that means reason or science or logic. And so it, it must not be an actual personal being. It must just be some thing or attribute that God has. And again, I say, well, just please be quiet and let John keep talking. So instead of finding some obscure esoteric meaning that says more about me, the interpreter, than the author... Let's just see what John has to say. Look down at verse 14. This is the next time John brings up that word, word. And let's see who John says it is. And the word became flesh. That's a big clue. Whatever the word is, it became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. It's getting clearer, isn't it? The Word became flesh, and He's the Son of the Father. Let's keep going. Full of grace and truth. That'll come up again. 15, John bore witness about Him. That's helpful. John the Baptist introduced this person. Let's pick up in verse 16. From His fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and here's that phrase again, grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. So who or what is the word? Jesus is the answer. Case closed. The word is Christ. The word is Jesus. If you ever feel like you're being confused about the Bible by apparently credentialed authors, I just want to encourage you, just keep reading the Bible. The answers are there. All right, here's a fair question, though. Why call the Word the Word? I mean, if he's Jesus, why not just call him Jesus? Two clues. Look back up to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Why call him the Word rather than Jesus? Because the eternal one who always existed wasn't yet known as Jesus. My wife grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and if I went to her elementary school and said, hey, I'm looking for yearbook photos of this woman, and I used her married name, they would not produce any yearbook photos. They would need her maiden name. Because at a point in time, she was married, two became one, and as a new compound, we have a new title. Jesus is known as Jesus because the Word became flesh. And then we call him Jesus because God and man have met. If this question sounds strange to you, I get asked it in the car line by my children very frequently. Dad, when did Jesus come into being? I try to explain, well, he's always existed as God the Son, but we call him Jesus because that's when God became man so that he could save us from our sins. All right, there's another reason that he's called the Word. Look down in verse 18. 18, John tells us why he's called the Word. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Once I was teaching on John 1, and someone came up to me afterwards, and they said, you know what, Josh? I like to think of the Word as a promise, Like, you're as good as your word, and so that must mean what John 1 means. And I said, well, that does mean that in other places. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So that's totally true, but that's not what John's doing in John 1. We don't get to make up what the word word means. John tells us what the word word means. It's the disclosure, the communication, the revelation of God. The clearest revelation of God. Now, we all know that words are a clearer opportunity to understand somebody than merely appearance or deeds. When I was in middle school, we were on a bus ride home from school, and there was a girl on one side of the bus, and she looked with longing at a boy who was asleep on the other side of the bus, and she declared that she had fallen in love with him. And then he woke up and started talking, and she declared she had fallen out of love with him. (laughs) The word revealed him. Now, here's what I want you to notice in this passage. The Bible does not call God the Son the deed because deeds are ambiguous. The Bible does not call God the Son the thought because a thought is something you keep to yourself. The Bible calls God the Son the Word because God loves us so much He cared to communicate to us as clearly as possible. And He has done so through His Son. This is not my opinion. This is what Hebrews says even more clearly. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. When you think of Christmas, praise God that He cared to communicate Himself to you that clearly. What a wonderful blessing that is. 
Homer Kent Jr. in his commentary, I think, helpfully writes, just as words are expressions of thoughts. So to call Christ the word is to regard him as the personal communication of the truth of God. He's not just the communication or the communicator, but the communication itself. He did not merely tell the truth of God. He is the truth. Jesus Christ is God expressed in genuine human flesh. And he is embodied in his own person, the fullest revelation of God to man. This is, I think, another good time for me to draw out an application for us. Perhaps, you know, 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The 100th Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, said this, and I think this is a good quote regarding John 1. God is Christ-like and in him there is no unchristlikeness at all. If you've ever been one of those people that says, you know, I really like Jesus, I'm just not so sure about God. Friend, Jesus is how you know God. If there's anything about God that you struggle with, like, oh, that's Old Testament, that's kind of weird. Jesus is how you most clearly understand what God is like. This is how God has spoken to us most clearly is through his son. You should most think about God through the lens of Jesus. All right, now we're ready for verses four through five. (laughs) That's just one through three. Verse four, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Perhaps you already see a parallel. Just as words reveal, so light is revelatory. Light shows, it illuminates, it helps us understand. When we're confused, we say, Can you shed some light on the subject for me? Jesus, as the light, reveals. But what does he reveal? What's interesting in verse 4 is he reveals his life. This one took me a long time to scratch my head on. Here's the best I can come up with. Here are my two sentences. In him was life means Jesus is self-existent and everything contingently exists because of him. In him was life means Jesus' self-existence and all creation contingently exist because of him. And then the next phrase, the life was the light of men, means this. The continued existence of creation is revelation that Jesus is life. So the fact that there is life in this world that we can observe and see is further light or revelation that Jesus is. And then he holds all things together. Colossians 1 says all things were made by him and for him. And it also says, and in him, all things hold together. Verse 17. Hebrews 1 says that through Jesus, God created the world. But then it says this in verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The ongoing existence of creation is further revelatory light that Jesus is the life and that all life exists because of him. Now, verses 4 through 5, especially all the way down through 10, use these words like light and life. And at first they seem very simple, and then you realize how layered they are. I think that's one of the reasons so many of us love the Gospel of John. Because John is that gospel you can read when you've never read the Bible, and it has this simple straightforwardness to it. John's also the gospel you can read when you've been a Christian for 70 years, and there's still layers of depth to it. This is a masterclass of intentional ambiguity, a masterclass. 
So what does life mean? Well, it means two things, self-existence and the creator is contingently existent on him as creation. What does light mean? Again, two things. It means that he shows his existence through creation, but it also, light means that it's intended to bring people to salvation. What is darkness then? If the darkness has not overcome the light, darkness is not merely the Genesis 1 void into which creation came, but darkness is also the hostility against the light, which we'll see in the verses that follow. So John here is pressing our consciences in John 1. He's letting us know that if we reject Jesus, we are culpable in our rejection. We have revelatory light and creation around us all the time. And our rejection of Christ is a rejection that we are complicit and responsible for. Now, last Sunday, and, and, and others have done this much better than me, so if this resource is mildly helpful to you, I'll just refer to it. Last Sunday in the sermon, I spent six minutes on this question. Why do human beings see the same created cosmos and have the same clues and come to differing conclusions? If you want to spend six minutes on that, go to last Sunday's YouTube and pick up at minute 45. So I won't spend as long on it today. But I I can't avoid what the gospel is telling us here. Look again in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Friend, I, I need your conscience to feel the weight of this. We are all responsible to believe in Jesus as the life. All of us are. We all have enough light. The darkness has not overcome it. It has not extinguished it. If we refuse to come to Christ, it is not because he has not made himself sufficiently clear. It is because in our hostility, we don't like the implications of Jesus alone being life. And I want to give a couple quotes to further support the statement that I just made. These are quotes of people who are famous atheists, and yet they're admitting that the reason they're not coming to the life isn't because they don't have sufficient evidence, but because they don't want to. The first person I'll quote is Tom Nagel. He taught at New York University for years, a very well-respected American philosopher. Here's what he wrote in his book, The Last Word, which is very interesting, but here's what he wrote near the end. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. His words next are especially revealing. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is the real responsible reason for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. If you read on the rest of what he has to say, it's so interesting how he admits his distaste for the Lord and how that's influenced the way we do science and politics today. All right, perhaps more well-recognizable to you is Aldous Huxley, the famous British author. Here's what he said on this same topic. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a system of morality, 
We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Well, I really appreciate these authors being so honest. They're, they're telling you, I have more than enough light. I just don't want to come to the life. And that's exactly what John is telling us. And one of the clearest implications of the fact that Jesus is the creator is that all of us are responsible to him as his creation. This is the unavoidable conclusion that we may give sinful excuses for, but they don't hide the real motivation. We push against the truth by suppressing it in unrighteousness. Friend, I want you to see from this passage that Jesus is the light, but he's a good light. He's a light that tries to bring you to the life. These things are written so that you would believe, and so that by believing you would have life in his name. He's giving you creation so you'll come to salvation. He's good in his revelation. Well, now let's look with me, please, at verse 6 through 8. And these talk about how the light is witnessed of. So verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, here's our first person that we're introduced to in the Gospel of John who is living a life to fulfill the purpose of the book of John. Remember, the book is written so that we might believe. Here, then, is a faithful believer. What do faithful believers do? They bear witness to the light. As faithful believers, we bear witness to the light because we are not the light. Only one person is the light and the life. That person is Jesus. We tell people about him, as John the Baptist does. But the amazing grace of Christmas is actually given to us in verse 9. Look now in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, in the Gospel of John, the word world is repeatedly and exclusively used in a negative tone. It always, without exception, in the Gospel of John, refers to people who have rebelled against their creator. I love the way Carson comments on John 3.16. We read, for God so loved the world. And Carson wrote, this is amazing, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. So here's what I want you to see in verse 9. We've already acknowledged that darkness pushes against the light, even though it can't snuff it out. And yet God is so good that the light has come to that world. A world of rebels, a world of hostile opposers to their creator, yet their creator loved them enough to pursue them. Just as in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sin, God is the one who pursues them. So here, thousands of years later, after we have rebelled, it is Christ who comes into the world to pursue us, to rescue us from our darkness. What a good Savior we have. So in 4, 5, he's the life, he's the light. In the verses that follow that we're about to read, we're all put at a point of decision. Let's look in the text now. We'll pick up in verse 10. Here's the decision that we're all put at. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's obviously true historically that Jesus was born in Israel, but everything we've read in the preceding 10 verses is about creation 
writ large. So probably the word world refers to all of us. He came to the human race and the human race did not receive him, did not know him. It's a historical tragedy that the gospel of John will detail for us how Jesus was rejected, maligned, falsely accused, ultimately crucified by the very creatures he made, the very humans whose life sustains because of his mercy and kindness. It's a horrible tragedy and an overt sign of rebellion for the creator to be crucified by his creation. But the creator came to remove darkness and to give us light. And so here's the good news in the next verse, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I say this sensitively because of many personal conversations I've had. One of my goals always as a fellow Christian, but particularly as a pastor, is to talk to people and see if they know the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll often ask them if they know the Lord or if they remember coming to know the Lord or, or if they ever remember asking God to forgive them or putting their faith in him. Many times, many times, someone has said to me something like this. Well, Josh, I was born a Christian. I've always been a Christian. My whole life, I've never needed to ask to be forgiven for anything. I was just born into the faith. Can I just show you from this passage? No one is naturally born a Christian. No one comes out having already had forgiveness of sins. We must be born again, as Jesus will say in John 3. And that birth is not a natural one, as verse 13 indicates, of blood or human will. It's a supernatural one accomplished by the will of God. So this morning, please don't think that you are just naturally a Christian and that you're automatically a child of God. This morning, it's vital that you understand you must receive Jesus to become a child of God. Let me push it even for, further. Notice that it says, receive Jesus. If you receive something, that means you didn't do it. You didn't earn it. You didn't bring something to it. You just open your hands and receive what somebody else has done for you. Christ has brought all of the life you need. He's brought all of the salvation you need. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension, all that we need is found in Christ, not something we contribute. We receive all that he is. That's why the text says we're born through simply believing in his name. Name refers to all that he is, all that he does, all that makes God God. I don't know if you're aware of these, but the theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul has written several really, really good children's books. They're fantastic. My favorite is The Lightlings. The Lightlings is great at Christmas time. It's a wonderful one to read with your children or grandchildren. Add it to your Amazon shopping list if you haven't filled that already. In Sproul's book, there's a king and maker of light, and he creates a perfectly radiant world and garden. But at some point, the people made in his image called the Lightlings, hence the title of the book, they reject him and they no longer trust him and they leave the radiant garden and they go further and further and deeper and deeper into the darkness of the forest where they stumble and fall repeatedly. And then one day, many days after the beginning, a glorious light burst at the other side of the forest. 
And insightfully, Sproul writes this, that when they saw the light, they feared that the king had finally come to punish them, and many of them fled further from the light. But the light had not come to punish them. (laughs) The light had come to remove their darkness. Has this thought ever hit you before? Jesus is the light of the world, and he's crucified in pitch black darkness. That's so that he can remove all of our darkness and burst forth his glorious light, and that can be our new life. Don't flee from the person who's pursued you to give you life. This is the person who's come to give you grace. So today's text causes us to respond, and the response throughout the book, these things are written so that you may believe, and that by continuing to believe, you may have life in his name. Perhaps this morning you're here and you haven't yet believed. You've never made a decisive commitment to give yourself to Jesus Christ. And maybe coming in today, you've thought of many reasons that you don't need to. You've thought of other people who are hypocrites or failures, and no doubt you have some ammunition to that. Institutions that use the name of Christ that don't act as Christ No doubt, that's a fair critique. Perhaps you've even felt like the evidence around you was not convincing enough. But I want to encourage you this morning to remember that the issue is the word, Jesus, the life, and the light. It's about you and him. It's about if you'll trust him, if you'll receive all that he is, The only person who's perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him. That's why he came into the world. But maybe some of you are here. You've gone to seminary. You've grown up in a Christian home. And honestly, as I was going through John 1, you were thinking, I know all this already. I could probably extemporaneously teach all of this. I didn't even learn anything interesting today. (laughs) Perhaps you were thinking. If you were thinking something like that, let me remind you, the purpose of knowing the light is so that you can go bear witness about the light. If your living doesn't start outpacing your learning, you're going to be miserable. We're actually not made to be people who soak the light for our own sake. We're supposed to be people who spread the light for those who are still in darkness. And the misery you're feeling is the Spirit's conviction. He's saying, stop learning and start living. Stop soaking start sharing. Others of you, you're here this morning, you do believe in Jesus. And maybe you've been thinking, well, I made that decisive commitment. Praise God that you have. But I wonder if before today you've realized that you need to make a daily choice to come to Jesus as well. You have to keep coming to him needy and receiving him. Keep trusting in him. Christian, how are you actually living in your daily decisions? Do you try to work stuff out apart from him? Do you try to handle challenges without bringing them to him? Do you try to accomplish the strenuous disappointments in your life without truly laying them before Christ, who is the life? Don't you see this morning? You should go to him with every request. You should yield to him with every decision, and you can trust him with every challenge. He's the word. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, thank you for the word who was God and who was with God. 
in the beginning, all things were made through him. My heart beats today because he upholds it with his power. And in his mercy, he has allowed me to exist. This is revelation that everyone has access to. No one can say that the light has not shone in their life. It has. I know it's difficult, but give us the intellectual honesty then to admit if I'm rejecting Jesus, it's because deep down, I don't trust him. I think I should be in charge. Maybe I have lots of real life experience that has disappointed me, but help people today to just focus on Jesus Christ, who is the light who came into a dark world and let that dark world crucify him so that he could give them life that they could never lose. Father, what a good savior we have that at Christmas, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, as Christians perhaps were convicted, we see in the gospels people who meet the light and then they go share that light. And perhaps we haven't shared that light really with hardly anyone. This is a great month to ask you for grace to share the light. We pray that you'd help us with that. But we also pray that whatever personally, even as a Christian, we're, we're carrying today, help us to bring it to Christ. And by believing, have life in his name. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.